This morning we're going to be in John chapter 4. And the last time we saw Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This was a knowledgeable, successful religious leader, but he was a babe when it came to spiritual things. Jesus had to teach him what it meant to be born again, what salvation looks like, what it means to be saved. And today, there's this woman at the well that Jesus meets, and we don't even know her name. It's not mentioned in the scripture. But watch how differently he deals with this woman, how much more gingerly, how much more delicate he is with her. And God, really, in his word, does have a double standard. And we say, whoa, double standards are bad, aren't they? Well, not necessarily. For believers, we should be holding each other, if we've been believers for a long time, to a higher standard. Uh, whereas when we look at the world, the outside world, the rebellious world, the pagan world, uh, the sinful world, we need to show them grace. Sometimes in the church we have it backwards where we, sh- we give each other a pass in some of our behaviors and things we shouldn't be doing, and then we ostracize the world and condemn them. But Jesus died for the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So as we go through this, if, we've, if you've been here for John chapter 3, you can see some of the contrasts in how he deals with this woman. So starting with verse 1 in John chapter 4, It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And that's covered in Genesis chapter 48. So Jesus knows that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're getting a little jealous. They see that Jesus, just because of who he is as the son of God, attracts a following. And it was not Christ's prophetic timetable to die yet. Did you know that Jesus had an actual week and day that he would come in to Jerusalem and be sacrificed for our sins? So if anyone says to you today, we're still waiting for the Messiah, there's several scriptures in the Old Testament that speak about a prophetic timetable, and it wasn't the time for Jesus to be crucified yet. So he goes north to Galilee. Now, to, to go from Judea to Galilee, you had to pass through Samaria. But most of the Jews of that day would absolutely avoid Samaria, even if it took them twice the time to make that trip. And the question is why? For that, we need a history lesson. We can look at the encyclopedia. We can look at the scripture in 2 Kings. And the bottom line is, way back when, uh, in the 8th century BC, Israel was divided up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes and the southern kingdom of the two tribes. And the northern kingdom had the capital, and its name was Samaria. Now, right around 722 BC, the Assyrians had come, this pagan group, and they invaded, and they besieged Samaria, and they overcame it. And they killed a lot of the men, and they expatriated a lot of the Jews to Assyria. And they took their people, their pagans, actually it was very smart, the Assyrian people, and brought them to the northern kingdom. So there was this intermarrying, this mixing of the races. Now remember, Jewish is a faith, but there's also a a definitive bloodline. Okay, so there's two things going on there. Today, the Bible is going to speak about institutionalized racism. We just think that's a 20th century or a 21st century term, but this is exactly what's going on in the scripture. 
And Jesus was not going to follow the mores and the dictates of society. He was going to go through Samaria and even maybe much to the chagrin of his disciples. Verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is tired and needs to rest. Remember, Jesus and the disciples didn't get into the happy van and drive 20 miles north. Okay, they walked. And Jesus, being fully God but also fully man, had a physical body that was weary. So the disciples go to to buy food and he's, you know, hanging out by this well. Here comes this local woman at about the sixth hour which is noontime, which means it's hot in that climate, and she goes to draw water. Now, women in that culture would normally come either in the morning when it was cooler or maybe once again in the evening. So this tells you a little bit about this woman. She might have been ostracized by her peers. She might have been, had a reputation, and she would be harassed if she went the same time as everybody else went. So she goes, much more difficult in the heat of the day, to draw water. So this is what's going on. And Jesus asked her for a drink of water. And this was respectful, but unusual. You see, a rabbi would not be speaking out in public with a woman. That's the first issue that society dictated. The second issue is she was a Samaritan. And the third issue is she obviously has some type of pass. So this woman has three strikes against her, But Jesus is still ministering to her, and it gets better. What I want to do at this point is start to weave seven points of how to win a person to salvation by Christ's own example with this woman at the well. So the first point is, he says, give me a drink. You get the person's attention. It has to start somewhere. There has to be something to open up the conversation. Now, we may ask, well, how does this apply to me? You could be in a, in a waiting room in a doctor's office, and the Holy Spirit may urge you to minister to someone who looks like they're having a hard time. A hello. Or, oh, this, how old is your son? He's really cute. Something to that effect. The second point here is the fact that he said anything to her. He broke through these barriers. And we're going to talk about cultural, racial, religious barriers that we may break through to reach someone for the gospel. Right? For us, for Jesus, he's the son of God. We're all his children. But for us, we may be stepping into unfamiliar territory. And this is an exercise in trust. I have to laugh, last year, uh, my son and I did a church function, and my wife went to Ohio to visit her relatives. And uh, we normally travel together, but it wasn't the case this time. And they all got together, and uh, they noticed that she has an Italian last name. So they said to her, so you're married to an Italian. <laughs> so they called them up there. And they're like, well, we don't have many Italians in these parts. So I'm really excited to meet them. And I'm sure they're going to have a lot of questions for me. But I'm going to use that as an open door to try to win some to Christ. Now, my wife cautioned me. She said, you're going to have to tone it down. The Millers don't have your sense of humor. <laughs> Verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Now, what does this mean? We know that disciples are buying food in the town, so there are some dealings. What he means or what she means is there's no social, there's no hospitality dealings. Remember, hospitality today is, is very watered down compared to hospitality in that culture, even in the Middle East today. Uh, for someone to be able to take you in, that's an honor for them, and it's an honor for you. So there's this issue here. He shows her honor by asking her for a drink of water. This blows her mind. I do want to digress for a moment and ask this question. Have you ever been intimidated by race, culture, or religion in that type of barrier? We're all people. I've had the good fortune and the blessing to witness to Jewish people, Nation of Islam, Hindu, Sikh, um, and sometimes they offend you or they insult you, but that's okay. Don't take it personally. You're trying to win them to salvation. And I, I get this question a lot, Pastor Joe, how do I witness to a Muslim person? That seems to be the big question these days because our culture is starting to change in this area. And they expect me to come out with this holy nugget out of my mouth, some scripture that no one's ever seen before, and I say to them, get to know them. Well, that's too easy. That's oversimplification. No, it's not. Because in their culture, they want to know that you care about them before you start handing them tracts. You need to build a bridge with them. Right? They want to know that you're genuine. So some things are just very simple. You don't have to be a pastor to figure this stuff out. And I'll tell you the truth, the fact that you cross the line or the barrier into their uh, camp will endear uh, you to them. Speaking of race, I do need to touch on this because there is that component in the scripture. Tragically, some Christian institutions have got caught up in, over the years, banning or outright having a problem with interracial relationships. I have to tell you, I don't like the word race. See, we have to use it because it is an anthropological term. It is a scientific term. But race implies evolutionary competition. Do yourself a very simple Google search between race and evolution. Look at race in itself, and you'll see the Caucasoids, the Mongoloids, the Negroids. And what they're saying is that we've all evolved in different levels. So who's better than who? Who's got more intelligence? Who's got more superiority? Hitler used this to try to exterminate the Jewish people. So you see the problems that come with this. That's why our schools are in trouble. That's why our public institutions are in trouble. The mightiest nation on earth is being torn apart by the inside because of race issues, because the Bible is not being taught. When kids in school understand that even though the person may look different from me, they're my brother or sister. We're all from the same family. It changes the concept of how we treat each other. Amen? Amen. All right. You're all awake this morning. I've got to be honest with you. Um, for those of you who are on the website or listening to a, a CD, you can't appreciate when I look out and I see this fellowship. And I was told before we moved to Jamesburg, there's race issues in Jamesburg. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're standing where I am and you're looking out, you would know it in this church. Because the more you preach the word of God and the truth, race doesn't become an issue anymore. See, we always get in trouble when we move away from the Bible and we listen to the men of science. Because in 20 years, a lot of the science will be changed anyway. It will evolve, pun intended. Verse 10. 
Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Much of this discourse, this back and forth, this spirit, this temporal, is the understanding that there are two wells. There's the temporal well, the things of the world, and there's the spiritual well. He says, number one, the gift of God. Most likely, um, scholars disagree on this. Is this Jesus or is this salvation? But Jesus gives the gift of salvation. He's the gift giver. So they're intertwined. Um, The other one is living water. I want to read Jeremiah 17, 13. The Lord says through Jeremiah, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. This isn't a new concept. This is also reflected in in, uh, Revelation 21 and all throughout the scripture. Now again, there is some discussion about this. What does this mean? Well, some will say it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, watch, watch the connections here. So if there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then we must say that the person is a believer. And if the person is a believer, we must say that the person has salvation. And if the person has salvation, then we must say that the person has a relationship with God. And if the person has a relationship with God, then the person also has the benefits of the promises of God, which are everlasting life. And lastly, what does it matter if we're overflowing with torrents of living water? So it's spilling out all over the place. You know, I mean, I, I, I got to catch it somehow, otherwise it's wasted. No, it's not. See, what happens there, and that's the beautiful part, is when it spills out from you, it spills out onto other people. So you see all the, the imagery here. Everyone is right. They're arguing about what it is. It's all right. It's all the same. That's a blessing. So the third point we get to, Jesus speaks of the gift of God and living water. He steers the conversation with this woman to spiritual things, and that's the goal. And how does that apply to us? We look for an open door. You may be somewhere in a public place, and someone says purposely, so that you could hear them, or they're just so uh, distraught, and they say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And you may say, you know, I'm sorry, I overheard what you said. I know somebody who can help you through that. You know, sometimes these open doors are, I mean, they're garage doors. They just, these bay doors, they open up, and you're like, wow. I mean, I could walk into that without hitting the sides. So this is what's going on. Verse 11. The woman said to him, sir... You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? She's still not getting it, like Nicodemus. But Jesus keeps trying to merge her into a spiritual discussion. 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. As I um, was studying this, I thought about all the times that I'm up here and I drink water. You know, I dry out when I speak and then I start to get tongue tied. I don't know how many gallons I've drank over, over the years just up here because I need to be quenched. But we're not just speaking about H2O. That's not what we're speaking about. He's speaking about 
the things of the world, the temporal well. Whatever her name is, a woman, you're going to be at this well. And you're going to get thirsty and you're going to come back to this well. For your whole life, you're going to need water. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's temporal, but let's talk about something else. Let's talk about believers today, right? You might feel uh, satisfied in your life and you, you leave the well because you're quenched. And then you may say, gee, if I could only make a few extra bucks, if I could only get that promotion, and you go to the well again and you drink of that water, you got the promotion. And then a few years later, you say to yourself, gee, if I can only have the right relationship, you go to the well again and you drink of the well, right? Where does it end? Uh, another marriage, another relationship, more money. I got to get out of New Jersey. I hear that a lot. But do you really think that's going to keep you from getting thirsty again? It's not. And Jesus says that. You will never spiritually thirst. There's one word here that really says it all. It's called satisfaction. When it comes to food, we call that satiety value. I'm satiated. How many of us today, if we don't have the Lord, can say, oh, I'm completely satisfied? Now say that, look in the mirror, and see if you really mean that. What Jesus is saying, no more searching. No more trying to fill the voids. No more trying to use earthly things to make you happy. The search ends here. And if you're truly in Christ and living for him, you'll be fulfilled. Like John the Baptist said when we covered this in the last chapter, he said, my joy is fulfilled. Wait a minute. Here's a guy who had a hard upbringing. He got arrested and put in jail for no reason. And they killed him in his 30s. How could he say my joy is fulfilled? His joy came from Christ. Nothing that was in the world. Are you thirsty today? And I don't mean that I'm going to give you one of my water bottles. Are you thirsty? Have you been searching? Have you come to this church maybe for the first time and said, you know what, boy, he's hitting me right. I don't even know who you are. Who's saying that? But somebody must be saying that. Because the word is powerful. It will reach deep into your soul and it wants to provide that spiritual water that you've been looking for all your life. Here it is. Yes, it is that simple. And maybe some of us as believers might have lost our way. And maybe we're thirsty. And maybe we just need to rededicate our lives to the Lord and prioritize him first. In verse 10, he spoke of the living water. Now in verse 14, he elaborates. He spoke of the fountain of water springing up into eternal life. So the fourth point, this fountain of living water springing or welling up in him, as Jesus says, or in her case, in her, or in your case, in you. Yes, 2,000 years later, this is applicable, this is available for you, for the taking in this room. So this is what happens here. Each one of these points goes deeper and deeper. And in this point, we see personal application. How does the Holy Spirit affect me in my life? You didn't walk in here this morning to really, I mean, you, you probably like the story. It's a great portion of scripture. But you want to know the bottom line. When you leave this building, how can this affect me? Right? And that's where this woman was, was starting to be moved in this portion of scripture. Now, when we deal with others, it may be this fourth point, sharing the truth of that person we're sitting with in the, in the waiting room, or sharing the truth after 10 people shared it with this person, and you're the 11th, and now all of a sudden they're really open because God keeps knocking on the door of their heart. 
Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Okay. Maybe in her mind, she's definitely being stimulated. But what's happening is she wants her life to be made easier. She doesn't want to trudge to the well anymore. Maybe in in part of her heart, she's really hoping that he can provide something that she doesn't have to go to the well every day. But here's the deal. God offers us what we need, not necessarily what we want. So many today have brushed aside the thought of salvation because they were really focused on a life of ease. And that's a tragedy because forever is forever. God won't remove all of our problems, but he will remedy them. She might have got to the point where she's saved. And I believe that from when you cover the whole scripture, this woman is saved. She's born again. God regenerates her spirit. However, she may still come to that well every day at noon for the rest of her life. But you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. As we're going to see later, she even left her water pot, runs back to the village and tells everybody about Jesus. So it's starting to take hold of this woman. And the same thing is available to you. You may say, well, I'm looking for Jesus to solve all of my problems. I I can't promise you that. But if you have a relationship with him, those problems may not be so scary anymore. If you have a choice to deal with your problems alone or with Jesus carrying you through it, I personally prefer the latter. At this stage of my life, I still prefer the latter and even more so. 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. In that you truly spoke. (laughs) I love to see the inflection of this conversation. This is the shortest answer that this woman gives in the whole chapter. I have no husband. (laughs) Can we move on from here? The presence of Jesus, and we spoke about this last Sunday, and this isn't politically correct in a lot of churches today. The presence of Jesus exposes sin. There must be a conviction of sin, then a repentance, and then salvation. We cannot add Jesus to the plethora of idols in our life. And usually the number one idol is, for me, it's me. For you, when you say, it's me, but it's you. You understand what I'm saying. Me is usually first, and then there's a long list of them. We can't just take Jesus, put him in a little figurine, and put him up on the shelf, because he ain't staying there. He's got to be number one. We must be convicted. We must look at the sin. Well, what's my sin? The fact that I want to do it all myself, and I want to discount him. You run into Jesus through his word, through some type of experience, through supernatural, through some person speaking to you, and you just can't continue on that same road. There's got to be a conviction, a repentance, and then salvation. So the fifth point, Jesus revealed her sin. Was he being mean to her? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How does she know she needs a savior if she doesn't know what she's being saved from? If somebody says to you, I need to save you, from what? You know, falling piano? I mean, what's the issue? You need to know what you're being saved from. And that opens up the void that you can articulably see And then Jesus comes in and fills that void. See, the world, the Bible tells us in John chapter 3, the woman was already condemned. Jesus didn't have to condemn her. If we're not born again, we're condemned because we cannot stand before a holy God and get into his kingdom. Jesus says the world's condemned already. I came to save the world. 
that the whole world through Jesus might be saved. So, so even at, at funerals, when I go through the, um, the I, I walk people through in a funeral, not assuming that they know spiritual things. And the first thing I start with is, how did we get to this point as, as humankind? And unfortunately, it's sin and rebellion. How do we get back home? And that's definitely the, the message of hope and good news for those listening. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she's either now speaking his language or she's uncomfortable with the husband issue or both. And I would say that the exposure of sin pro- finally brings her from a temporal conversation to a spiritual conversation. And just a little uh, historical background is that there were two mountains, Mount Moriah and Mount Gerizim. And Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is and the temple and all the sacrifices and how to get to God and how to meet him on his terms. And then what happened was because of the race issues between the Samaritans and the Jews, not, long, not far north, the Samaritans set up their own temple worship, their own their own worship on Mount Gerizim. So that's what, you, that's what this conversation is about. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Powerful. Let's start with the mountain issue. (laughs) Let's try not to make a mountain out of a molehill here. I tried. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is, listen, it's not important what mountain you worship on. At this point, God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's really more important what's on the inside, internals versus externals. It isn't about being externally religious, externally putting on a show for others, because God can see our heart. The mountain, the manner of dress, the worship, the language that we use, uh, it's really what's going on inside of the heart. Verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. Salvation is is of the Jews. You see, God set up for all the families of the earth in Genesis 12 to be blessed through the Jewish people because that's where the Messiah would come through. So understand that. And the Samaritans changed the plans. Today, many say that they worship God. Oh, I worship God. I have my own relationship with God, but they truly don't. And that's what he's saying to her. And it still applies today. It's, It's not because they do it their way instead of his way. You'll meet, come across people all the time. Well, I worship God my own way. Well, we all get to choose which way we get to worship God. And that's really not fair because there's different standards there. He says in verse 24, we must, just like he says, we must be born again. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. Is our worship of God true? How do we worship him? Do we even know what God wants from us? When we shop for a church or a religion, do we shop for one that's based on our own needs or our own desires? Some will say, you know, my husband is is X religion and I'm uh, Y religion and, you know, we just want to pick one 
so it's good for our children. That's not a reason. When we choose to follow worship, is it true? That's what we need to ask ourselves, not based on any other reason. So the sixth point is, we must worship God in spirit and in truth. He instructs her to a true relationship and godly living. Now, how does that apply to us dealing with others, as he did with the woman at the well? Well, it could be that we give them our phone number and we talk to them again. It could be that we lead them to a Bible-believing church. It could be that we give them a Bible. So these are all ways that we can show them how to worship the way God wants to be worshipped. And verse 26 Jesus actually says in the Greek, ego eimi ha lalon soy. Now, ego eimi comes first. What Jesus actually says, he says, I am, comma, the one who you speak to, or the one who's speaking to you. So don't miss that. That in the Greek means that he's claiming a deity. And this is going to be said several times through this gospel. Jesus will stop and say, I am. That was the name in Exodus 3 that God gave for himself to describe himself to Moses. So anyone who says that is claiming to be God. Now just look at her reaction. She ditches the water pot and runs to tell everyone in her village what's going on. Verse 27. At this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? I mean, this is kind of comical if you really envision it. Peter, John, who was trying to get in his good favor and handed him a piece of bread before we could give him something? So it's, it's kind of comic. And I'm going to leave off here uh, until the next time because it's such an awesome chapter. I want to break it up into two parts instead of rushing through it or keeping you here for an hour and a half. I'm sure many of you appreciate that. Uh, but verse 28, she leaves her water pot. See, she's starting to make the transition. The temporal doesn't matter to her anymore. This woman came in the heat of the day. It could have been 90, 100, 100 plus degrees. It's hot. And, you know, she's sweating. She's traveling from the village to the well. And she goes to draw this water, and she probably really just wants to take a drink of this water. And then Jesus completely turns her on to spiritual things. So the seventh point, Jesus brings her to a place of joy with which she can share the good news with others. Now she's starting to overflow. She got a crash course in a spiritual lesson by the greatest ministry on the planet. And in Calvary, we call that win, win a person to salvation, build, build them up into the things of God, and send them out to affect others. Well, she was off. You know, I could just see her booking down the road and not even thinking about what she did with that water pot. Very exciting. So here's the truth today. We all have a choice of two wells. Actually, I named this message a tale of two wells. Some of you today are still drinking from the temporal well, and you're thirsty. And you're here. And it's no coincidence that you're here in this portion of Scripture. But I will tell you this, if you keep drinking from the temporal well, you're going to be thirsty. Now, you may, you may win the lottery, and all of a sudden, that drink, that drink lasts you another five years, 
and then you'll find at one point that that doesn't satisfy you. You may move out of New Jersey. You may get a new car, a new house, whatever the case may be. You may finally find the guy of your dreams or the girl of your dreams. Okay, I'm good for a while. Eventually, that's going to wear thin as well. When all the fireworks uh, wear off, and now it's real. Now you got to start working at your relationship for better or for worse. As I speak to you today, some of you have your day planned, your week planned, or your life planned, as if you're going to live forever. I can tell you the truth, that's not the case. Just like the woman at the well, though, you've met the Lord Jesus Christ through his word, and he wants to give you something more. Not only living water, but fountains of living water springing up inside of you. Not only everlasting life, but working with him to see that others have everlasting life. He wants not only a relationship with you, which is available today, but he wants a partnership. For those of you who work for a a major corporation and the CEO just pulls you out of your cubicle and says, come over here. I want you to work with me. I want you to partner with me in this multi-billion dollar corporation. Wow. That's kind of cool, but what's really cool, more cool, is the fact that God, who created everything, created you, created everyone around you, created those relationships, wants you to be in partnership with him. How do you get a better deal than that? The God of the universe. But what you need to do is take the first step, and some of you may take that first step today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we... We read your word, and it's always a blessing to us, how it ministers to our soul, how it scratches where we itch, how it quenches the thirsty soul. And Lord, today it's no different. And I really believe that there's certain scriptures that...